So I want to give a few words about distribution grids. I'm talking about these low voltage parts of the grid that connect consumers to the power supply. So not the large scale meshed transmission grids, but the smaller scale guys. Distribution hasn't been as exciting as large scale transmission in recent discussions lately. Um, you don't really see a lot of distribution discussed in the IRA, for example, but it's going to be essential to start thinking about distribution as, as we pursue goals like electrification and more distributed energy resources, more electric vehicles. So what's so interesting about distribution? Well, most outages happen in distribution by a pretty large margin. These are sort of aging, weak parts of the grid that uh, are not upgraded as frequently as they should be. In the U.S., most distribution grids are radial, meaning that there's not a lot of redundancy in the grid. They're not meshed. If a line goes out upstream, everyone downstream is affected. And this isn't the case in other areas. Like in the U.K., they have a lot more meshed distribution grids, for example. Distribution lines and transformers were considered oversized when they were designed, but now they're a lot less oversized than we anticipated, and we're starting to reach fundamental limits of how much current and power these things can carry. So when we think about things like more rooftop solar or installing electric vehicles or heat pumps, it's going to pose a huge challenge for the existing infrastructure. Utilities generally have a model of the run-to-failure model, which has generally made sense. These components hadn't failed very often, so it made sense to replace them when they did fail. But it might be worth starting to think about how we can anticipate accommodating electrification, accommodating more distributed energy resources, and foresee that ahead of time and upgrade these components ahead of time. Uh, speaking about resiliency, I also think we need to start thinking about hardening distribution a lot more than we have. So this could be something like undergrounding lines and transformers, but also things like reinforcing poles. Um, a lot of these techniques are less costly and can help us sort of bridge that gap between you know, the time that we and funding that we require to replace the components and where we are right now. And lastly, sharing energy resources among consumers and distribution grids making better use of demand response, making better use of buildings as demand-side resources, and generally involving the consumer in the energy loop a little bit better is something that I find really interesting. And I think there's a lot of untapped potential in the consumer side. We started in hard times to bring us all in into the laughter through thick and through thin for public power enthusiasts without and within roll on enthusiasts roll on roll on enthusiasts roll on roll on enthusiasts roll on We're i'm karen heim i'm almas nagesh and i'm paul dockery Joining Almaz, Paul, and I as this week's celebrity guest star is Kyrie Baker. Professor uh, Professor Baker is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering Department. She holds a courtesy appointment to the Department of Electrical, Computer, and Energy Engineering and a joint appointment to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory through the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute. Whew, that's a breath. In 2022, she was honored with the John and Mercedes Peebles in, uh, in a Innovation and Education Award. The Peebles Award is a student-nominated uh, award and recognizes faculty in the college who have shown a unique commitment to students demonstrated through innovations in education. Professor Baker, welcome back to the underground. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yes. Uh, may we call you Kyrie? Absolutely. Kyrie's totally fine. All right. Fantastic. We're, we're excited that you're back. Uh, and going off of just your intro, uh, it's going to be a fun episode. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to talk about distribution systems. Yes, I love yes. it. Yes, it is good and that I did, there is. Sorry, I was just going to say it is good that there is an electric utility enthusiast like thing now because we yes, are in it. <laughs> we're in it. We are in. Um, uh, I did want to make the connection. It does seem to me, Kyrie, from your following you on Twitter, you're a cat person. Almaz, one of the other cat people in oh my life. Oh my god, I didn't <laughs> know that. I love cats. Don't even get me started on cats. <laughs> This is something from Almaz's background. Is a lot of times it's a cat in the background of her yeah, Zoom videos. So when I'm when I'm on Teams, I do have that cute cat in the background. But Zoom, I haven't uploaded a picture. You see, now I got to do it. Paul. Oh, I got to yeah. see. I haven't not been on a Teams meeting with you, so you got to do it for next time. Cat ever? <laughs> yes, making connections, the cat connection, as it were. It's always there. Always important. Oh, it is. 
Okay, on today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching some electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power system professor's perspective. Uh, A PSPP is what I'm calling it. Um, We're talking Winter Storm Elliott, the White House's electrification summit, and transformer shortages. Then we're short-circuiting our way through the rest of the topics we didn't get to in a segment we're calling Short to Ground. But before we get started, a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power. Did you know that? I did not know that. Thank you for informing me, Almaz. i always here to inform. In, in, in fact, nuclear energy provides about 50% of the country's carbon-free electricity, and Energy Northwest is a premier provider of carbon-free electricity in the, power, in the Pacific Northwest. That I did know. I knew that. All right. So Energy Northwest's mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost-effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest energy, clean energy future. To learn more about Energy Northwest, visit our website at energy-northwest.com. That's Energy northwest.com did you get that go there. i got it i'm gonna go there energy-northwest.com i got it figured out all right thanks so much our first segment is public power desktop uh, where we close out some browser tabs of energy and energy adjacent adjacent news uh, you've got the first brief Amaz, so take it away all right this one's about winter storm elliot uh Winter storm Elliott began in the Pacific Northwest on December 20th before continuing across the U.S. in the days leading up to the Christmas holiday. The storm resulted in an Energy Emergency Alert 1 in SPP, Energy Emergency Alert 2 in PJM and MISO, and rolling blackouts in the control areas of the Tennessee Valley Authority and Duke Energy. Energy Twitter had takes, of course. Thankfully, Brian Bartholomew, who can be found at the handle BP Bartholomew on Twitter, consolidated the Energy Twitter take machine into an easily followable Substack post at the Merit Order. While we expect and hope that there will be another flurry of research papers as a result of Winter Storm Elliott, we're hoping we can start with the work of Professor Baker and her co-authors uh, and what they did in the aftermath of Winter Storm Uri in the article titled Cascading Risks, Understanding the 2021 Winter Blackout in Texas. One takeaway from Energy Twitter was the value of interregional transfers during the event and the need to expand that transfer capability to reduce further risk. Those instantaneous takes appear to make a takeaway from the co-authored piece on URI. See section 4.5, quote, quote, imported power would would not have fully compensated for the loss of production inside Texas, but it's possible that a few gigawatts of additional capacity would have blunted the worst outcomes Um, at the depth of the crisis, giving enough spare capacity to facilitate rotating outages instead of controlled outages and giving more cushion from the moments when the entire grid almost collapsed, end quote. So, Professor or Kyrie, (laughs) what do you think? Uh, How do the hot takes from Energy Twitter align or not align with your opinion? Well, this time I'm happy to see that there was a lot less uh, blaming of renewables on the outages, I think, than what happened with URI. Uh I think people realized sort of the limitations of the natural gas infrastructure, how we really desperately need to winterize that. Um, and the hot takes, I'd say overall, you know, there's some I disagreed with, but some were pretty reasonable. Um, one thing that we did discuss, me and the co-authors on that paper that didn't make it into the paper um, that y'all might find interesting was sort of you know, could ERCOT still maintain a lot of its independence, but install more high voltage DC lines? So instead of, you know, connecting via AC lines and being subject to more FERC jurisdiction, maybe there could be more power exchange with high voltage DC lines. So that's something that we're thinking about as a possible solution in addition to the winterization. Um, Another thing that we sort of talked about was how can we move away from these sort of what I call brute force load shedding and power cuts towards a more dynamic response. The cost of load shedding is extremely expensive. Um, It's also, you know, obviously dangerous, especially during these winter storms to consumers. 
So how can we incentivize people a little bit better to reduce energy consumption while adequately compensating them rather than just continuing to ask them nicely? Um, and then the last time I was on Public Power Underground, I sort of talked about this you know, idea about how we could possibly compensate consumers by adopting the flight model where people bid how much they'd be willing to reduce their consumption. And ideally, this would be something that only happens, you know, once or twice a year where people receive a text and they're like, you know, submit a dollar amount that you'd be willing to reduce, you know, your heating or otherwise reduce your electricity consumption by a certain amount. Um, And with a lot of our smart devices and smart meters, it's a lot easier to account for that. So hot takes on energy Twitter. I love energy Twitter. I've learned a lot from energy Twitter. Um, some, some are decent and fair. Uh, the grid certainly needs upgrades, but there's also a lot of other creative things we can do to sort of hedge against these storms in the future. You know, I, I like how your, your thoughts are really solutions focused, but um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. I've got two follow-up questions. So you'd mentioned um, how ERCOT could maintain its independence by having DC lines. Um, so I was hoping you can ex- elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, and I was going to ask you, is there like, what's the amount of money that we could offer to make demand response worth it for the average person? And then you you gave your third point, which was let people say how much that is. But uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts on uh, on an average for that value for the for like for you or me or the average person. Um, uh, those are two of my two follow up questions for you. Yeah, the first question, the reason that that didn't have a bigger discussion in the paper was sort of we couldn't find an exact definitive answer. It sort of seems like this loophole where because high voltage DC lines don't introduce, you know, frequency fluctuations as easy as AC lines, for example, they might be subject to less restriction um, than AC lines. Because oh, you know, okay. it does have connections to international connections to Mexico, but also connections to other ISOs. They're just DC lines. Okay. So, so there it's a, it's a, a loophole that might be able to be explored uh, or exploited, but we don't really know for sure if that would work. Yeah, I wasn't 100% confident in all the legal documents I read in my interpretation of them, but all right. it seems like a possibility. Cool. It's like cool. a threshold question, right? Is when is the DC, like how much DC transfer could you have and still not be uh, under FERC? Or, or is there just a question of like, is any DC volume, regardless of the size, not under? I I don't know. I think uh, both, because I think once you get past hard. a certain level, it would affect grid stability, even if it was DC. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to guess that that would, the Supreme, that something like that would get argued all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would say, DC lines fall under for jurisdiction. That's possibly like my, my gut instinct is that I remember uh, order 745 when they were talking about demand response and whether or not that was, you know, subject to for jurisdiction. And even though that's very much a local resource, it was still considered under for jurisdiction. So I'm like, I mean, I, I, I'd love to see if that, if something like that would work, but my 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 gut says it won't. You probably get I, I something like you, you. you'll know you'll know the threshold when we see it. We'll know the threshold yeah. when we'll see it, right? Is what, what whoever will say. I'm not going to let you get away from the second half of Almaz's question though, which is what is the price point that you or we should consider actual uh, load ge- or residential ma- demand reduction? When you start involving human psychology into a lot of these economic analyses, it just gets really complicated, but. The answer is, you know, annoyingly, it depends. So there was a study that I um, heard about recently where they looked at when people buy backup diesel diesel generators for their house. And something like 70% of diesel generators are sold within one week before or after an extreme weather event like a hurricane, for example. And so people were looking at, well, you know, some consumers are willing to pay this amount for a diesel generator. Maybe we can translate that into the value of lost load. Um, And that's what we should pay people. Because if you ask a person, you know, how much are you willing to pay for a kilowatt hour? An average person has no idea what a kilowatt hour is. Um, They don't know how much their air conditioner or heater or dishwasher uses. So that kind of, you know, intangible product that people can't assign a price to just makes this a super hard problem. So I don't have an an answer for the, the dollar amount. 
Is the lesson I, that it's it's more than the cost of a generator though? Because if people yeah. are willing to go buy the generator, it's 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 that's uh, at least that high, right? I think you could interpret it that way. I don't know yeah. if every human would interpret it that way, but yes. <laughs> so I'll, the last thing I'll throw, I'll just throw out one number because I I ask I like to ask people just randomly how much would you pay for? Uh, <laughs> Do you? Know, you? Wait, where are you asking these people? <laughs> Unfortunately, the people in my family have no choice; they can't run away. <laughs> I asked my little sister, and she said she threw out the number six hundred dollars. She was like. That's how much she'd be willing to pay uh, to make sure she had no outage. Um, so like that, that was what, and anything more than that, she was like, I just go ahead and take the outage. So I feel like $600 like, for a day or for, for like for an event, an for event, an event. Okay. like, wow. um, and I, I didn't ask her how long, but she yeah, was I was like, going to say <laughs> but $600 just seems like so much more than we would ever provide. And I was like, yeah, you're getting cut off if, if ever. Something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're going to lose power. <laughs> that seems a little high, I think, but if you take a look at people like evacuating to hotels or paying, you know, 150 bucks a night at a hotel, they're definitely willing to pay at least that much to stay in their own house and not have an outage. So right. yeah. That's why the airline technique of asking is like a good price discovery, mm-hmm. a way to get price discovery, right? What are you willing to do in order to have this inconvenience and being close to the event? Because it always like, depending on when you ask, you'll get different answers, right? If it's oh, yeah. in the winter and you have no other solution, you're going to get a, a different answer. So the airline, I, I really like that idea conceptually. I do too. Um, I want to get back into kind of the comparisons and and lessons learned from Winter Storm Yuri that could apply to Elliot. What do you think of um, one of the distinctions there being uh, the kind of interconnected nature where the outages occurred this time in TVA and Duke uh, because they were part of the Eastern Interconnect and there was more transmission uh, uh, interconnection in order to take advantage of. They ended up just having these rolling blackouts and not the long-term uh, shutdowns and blackouts like Winter Storm Yuri had in Texas. That was one of my takeaways. What do you think of that conceptually? Yeah, that was definitely one of the big differences between the two storms. It's The power grid is really complex. You can't tell power where to flow. Not everywhere is meshed, like I mentioned in the, in the intro today. Um, so you can't always redirect power to where it needs to go. Um, so if you have, for example, a ton of generation in one part of the grid and a lack of generation in another part, you might still have to perform rolling blackouts to conserve some of that capacity if you don't have the transmission. So certainly you can't really pinpoint the blame on any one sort of aspect. Um, conversely, you can have as interconnected of a, a grid as you want, but if you have things like distribution bottlenecks or outages at the low voltage level that aren't affected by how much generation you have. Um, There's not much you can do there. So I think Elliot sort of showed and illustrated that it's not just a ERCOT problem. Um, The whole grid is, is being challenged right now and it's going to continue to be challenged. But it did underscore to me the difference in resilience in an interconnected system than in an islanded system. True. That even they are they are different in kinds, even if they have similar causes. It's a very different um, outage if it's down for two days mm-hmm. or three days cold versus being able to rotate it. And and to your point uh, that we we are blind in a lot of our rotating outages and like the next step of having a more incited insightful or more insight into how and when and where to do the rotating of the outages would be really valuable but at least if it's rotating you have more planned and controlled outage they do seem very different in kind exactly and you know in America, we're not as used to rolling or scheduled outages, but it happens all the time internationally. People get used to sort of being without power for one hour a day and they adapt. So it's not the end of the world. Let's, let's talk about it. Like, you, okay, you Paul, well, you it? have the next topic, so go right yeah. ahead. Are we ready for it? I'm ready for it. Okay. On Wednesday, December 14th, 2022, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, Climate Policy Office, and the Office of Clean Energy Innovation and Implementation hosted a White House Electrification Summit to explore how electrification 
uh, can help the United States meet its climate and equity goals. This event convened energy and environmental leaders from government, industry, academia, and stakeholder groups to showcase the unprecedented opportunities for inclusive electrification created by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and Inflation Reduction Act, which we have come to refer as Uncle Bill and Aunt Ira. Our celebrity guest star was one such dignitary event attending the event. And uh, Professor Baker, you co-authored a paper, an article called Optimal Designs of Grid-Connected, Energy-Efficient, and Resilient Residential Communities. I'm guessing you have some thoughts on building electrification. Any takeaways from the event um, on the potential internet uh, upgrades available, funding through Uncle Aunt Ira, uh, anything you got here, I'm here for it. Yeah, so there was this, you know, publicly broadcast part of the um, electrification summit, and then we kind of broke out into these three breakout groups, buildings, transportation, and grid. Um, I sort of span grid and buildings, but I got to join the buildings uh, group, and there were a lot of really insightful comments. So, um, you know, the people there spanned, you know, HVAC companies, uh, you know, private startups, um, government, academia, like myself. And we kind of identified a lot of these key challenges, one of which is, like you mentioned, equity goals. Um, we're seeing great levels of electric vehicle adoption in wealthy communities, um, but it's not. we're not going to be able to reach our climate goals unless we make these sustainable solutions accessible to everybody. Um, so Aunt Ira, you know, she's offering up a, a plate full of cookies and we we're trying to get people to take them. But there's still some fundamental issues like people who don't have single family homes or people who can't afford even, you know, leasing a new car, uh, much less buying a new car. So the electrification aspect focused more on, you know, now that the grid is clean enough and we're rapidly decarbonizing the generation side, maybe it makes sense to start rapidly decarbonizing and electrifying the load side. Um, so things like heat pumps, um, induction stoves, heat pump, water heaters, electric vehicles, et cetera. One big problem that we identified was uh, the lack of contractors, actually, that are A, knowledgeable about it and B, open to installing these technologies. So we had a new heat pump uh, installed at our house. I had five different companies come out and the quotes were all over the place. It ranged from like 15K to 45K to install. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> and the 45K one, I'm pretty sure the company just did not want to install a heat pump. They kept saying, oh, you can get a gas furnace for a fraction of the cost. And I was like, yeah, but I, I want a heat pump. Yeah, but we're really fast with gas furnaces. So I, I dug a little bit into it and it's like, yeah, almost everyone at the company is trained to install the gas furnaces as fast and as streamlined as possible. So it's not just like a supply issue, although that exists, or a interest issue. It's also, can we get contractors out to electrify these homes um, fast enough? and willingly. Um, so that was a big point of discussion. And then upgrading a home's electrical system. So I talked earlier about, you know, the bottlenecks of the distribution system, the bottlenecks of transformers, but inside the home, the wires physically coming into your breaker box. And I teach a whole class about the National Electric Code. So now I'm, you know, <laughs> somewhat of a very knowledgeable about receptacles and breakers and, and panel boards. But these things were not designed for 100% electric homes. So there's some fundamental challenges there with how are we going to get people to choose the electric option when they're going to have to do things like pay for a breaker upgrade, pay for a new service entrance conductor. Um, a lot of really interesting problems to be solved and also opportunities for innovation and um, you know companies to pop up, research to pop up in this area. Yeah. Um, people, we need the people to go install. We need to train electricians yep. so that we have a workforce of electricians to come do this work. One of the panels had, uh, I forget the title at the IBEW, but a representative from the IBEW to talk about workforce development. Um, any lessons you, like takeaways you had from that workforce development perspective on ways to um, make the make it more effective. I feel like electric utilities have a role in this, quite frankly, because we're the benefit. I do think of us as beneficiaries of electrification. Like we get to sell more of our stuff. Um, we get to, I mean, we will need to hire more people in order to sell more of our stuff. 
Mm -hmm. uh, because we sell electricity. Um, Do you see an angle there for a role for electric utilities and and workforce development in order to make it easier to go get a, to, to, to get something installed? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the workforce development is hard just from a, you know, marketing and advertising it's because we've been telling kids for the past couple of generations that everyone needs to go get go to college and everyone needs to go to graduate school and to be successful you need a college degree when it's actually like there's a ton of value that you can bring and that you can glean from becoming an electrician or becoming a lineman or becoming somebody who helps make electrification happen on the ground um and utilities certainly are going to play a big like you said you know the electric demand is going to increase. There's going to be additional problems to be solved. So you're in a good industry for, for that right now. Um, <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah. It's, I don't know how to address the workforce development problem though. It's so challenging. Yeah. And there's, is a lot of money in Aunt Ira. I believe it's Aunt Ira for mm-hmm. the home side of the wiring, yeah. right? Did they talk yep. a little bit about that? Any takeaways there? Yeah. The, I think, um, there's a lot of benefits for, for example, upgrading your panel, your service entrance, which are the wires that come into your panel. Um, there's been a lot of utilities pushing smart meters, which makes electrification easier because then you have a little bit more visibility into where you need to make upgrades or you know what problems might pop up later. Um, Ira has things that address that, but I think it's just you know extra stuff for a consumer to think about, which still makes it challenging. The incentives are there the tax credits are there, but they still have to go through the steps of getting those versus, you know, a lot of people only upgrade their furnace or air conditioner when it breaks. And they're in this crisis situation where they're willing to just pick the fastest and cheapest option. Um, A lot of these longer term incentives, it's just challenging for consumers to, to consider. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit to not just the building electrification, but also like communities and communities approach to um, like codes and, and getting your community to be more energy efficient. So you wrote this paper about the optimal designs of grid connected energy efficiency. Any takeaways there around the way communities could approach a beneficial electrification um, that you wanted to share with with us? Yeah, one big takeaway, which may be impossible in practice, but in existing communities, if you plan everything centrally, it's going to end up being a lot more optimal than if people do it sort of piece by piece. Um, So for example, we know that community or utility scale solar is significantly cheaper than rooftop solar, but it's really hard to install the infrastructure and have the billing mechanisms to have a community that shares a resource like that. Um, it requires a lot of moving pieces to be put together. Same thing with like battery storage. Um, you know, if you want a resilient microgrid community, for example, in the mountains, we have a few of those here in Colorado. Um, you would ideally want to have community scale solar, community scale energy storage. You get that sort of um, buying in bulk effect where the cost is overall lower, but then people are required to share. It's unclear who's if people are benefiting more than their neighbors. Um, but one big takeaway we found from that study was, yeah, when it's centrally planned, you get sort of cost savings throughout the community. It's just hard to get people to do that. And how that, that seems to me like a good role for electric utilities and your public power neighbors, right? We're community uh, oriented organizations yep. that want to make power more uh, readily available and cost effective for our customers. It seems like a great place for us, right? Yeah, absolutely. There needs to be more communication between consumers and and utilities, Um, more involvement, more awareness in general, you know, closing the loop between the two a little bit better. And how much are like building codes part of that community design of your energy system? I know, and I believe it is also Aunt Ira, the, there's funding for building code development for communities. And I think actually one of your, your, uh, Somebody from Colorado actually was on that panel talking about building codes and building code implementation. Any any takeaways there? Yeah, Denver's doing a lot with building electrification and sort of pursuing energy efficient buildings in general. Um, I'm more worried about communities that don't have an entire committee on their city council dedicated to buildings, um, which is, I think, the case for most of the U.S. But it's a kind of a combination, not only with electrification, but just to talk for a minute about, you know, broader than car, you know, greenhouse gas emissions on a broader scale. 
um, the materials we use to construct a building, the embodied carbon in those materials, the cement, the you know battery materials, solar panel materials. It's really like a life cycle carbon analysis, not just a you know replacing fossil fuel devices now with electric versions. Um, so on the building scale, you know we're looking at how can you replace large scale boilers and basements with you know heat pump boilers rather than fossil fuel boilers. So it's a little bit different than the residential aspect. Um, yeah, it's going to be challenging to to do all these retrofits, but I think there's also you know so much opportunity for technology um, and for building owners to save money ultimately because you can couple that with rooftop solar or something where you know you can shave off the peak, lower your demand charges on your bill. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do that as much with natural gas, for instance, or some other kind of fossil fuel. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of opportunity there to for new uh, businesses to come into that space that specialize in this type of retrofit and analysis because a lot of the like industrial buildings or industrial, not industrial buildings, commercial buildings are almost unique in redesigning those type of systems, right? So if you're going to replace a boiler, it's probably not stamping the same design from one to the other. You're going to have to figure out yeah. how to do it for each one individually. Um, yeah, so and then... Just to interject about one of our projects on the industrial scale, since you mentioned that briefly. Yes. I think... We won't cut that out now. <laughs> my, my, my misspeaking, we won't, we'll leave it in. <laughs> Good. So we're, we're also taking a look at sort of electrification of chemical plants, petrochemical plants. Yeah. Um, chemical plants result in a large amount of emissions, but if we electrify them, it's going to be a big strain on the power grid. So it's sort of, you know, massive amounts of energy um, from these plants, utilities may have to start rethinking, you know, how can I incentivize flexibility from plants that are used to running at 100% capacity 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, so in particular, we're taking a look at, you know, ethylene plants, which is a big, uh, big energy consumer. Um, they split ethane into ethylene and some other byproducts. Um, but they also produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So I think- Are these heat processes? Are, are the, is it you're generating steam to in order to make heat kind of thing? Yeah, we're talking like 800, 900 degrees Celsius. So heat pumps aren't gonna quite cut it at those temperatures. So there needs to be a lot of like innovations on the chemistry and, and materials side to electrify the plants too. Um, but once that happens- the grid is also going to be sort of, you know, hopefully keeping up with this large additional load. But that's something we're thinking about outside of just residential and commercial, which the technology is mainly there. It's just putting it into practice and getting it, you know, installed in the buildings that needs to be, that needs to happen. All right. Uh, okay, Amaz, let's go to you. What's next? All right. Oh, and then a utility dive article. So, Utility Dive recently covered the distribution transformer shortage and procurement lead times in a December 19th article by Robert Walton. The topic has been a regular discussion point among distribution utilities and the American Public Power Association since last year. According to a member survey published by APPA in October, between 2020 and 2022, average lead times to procure distribution transformers for all voltage classes rose 429% for public power respondents. A transformer with a lead time of two or three months before 2021 had a lead time of about 12 months in 2022. Some utilities reported being quoted lead times of more than three years. APPA in a group of lawmakers led by uh, uh, Representative Sean Caston of Hot Fork Summer and Energy Twitter fame attempted to get funding to address the shortage of electrical transformers and complementary grid security technologies through the Defense Production Act, which ultimately failed to be included in the end of year omnibus appropriations bill. Ultimately, Distribution grids are going to be the vehicle for economy-wide electrification, so that much we know. So I'm, I'm wondering, is this current status of transformers uh, and their speed bumps and, and these current speed bumps a warning uh, of what's to come? What do you think? 
I'm scared about this. I, I think it is, you know, something that people are underestimating, but and that, those numbers you cited, like show exactly why the wait time on transformers is really high. The supply chain issues, um, installing them is non-trivial. And let me show you something actually. <laughs> so I don't know if you can see this, but this is a transformer, very, very, very small transformer. So you can see the copper windings. Here's the core. This thing is for a piece of equipment. So it's not like at all a grid scale transformer. It's 10 pounds was significantly, um, you know, lighter than what we see pole mounted transformers or those green boxes being. And we're talking about, in some cases, a thousand pounds of metal in those green boxes. So these things are huge. It's not cheap to produce them. It's not easy to get the materials. And we're seeing wait times that are already, you know, a year for some of them. So I'm a bit nervous about this problem. Um, I think we need, that's why I think we need to start thinking about it way sooner. It's not just the equipment in the buildings. It's not just the transmission lines. It's a distribution. Um, I think we're headed on the right track with all the other pieces. We just need to not think about, not forget the, the utilities and not forget the players in between who need to facilitate this interaction between the clean, efficient grid and the buildings. Um, it's something that I feel passionately about and that I think devices like demand response could help mitigate sort of smart EV charging, for example, smart use of thermostats can help offset overloading of transformers. Um, but these are still complicated, you know, not physically complicated, but it's going to be complicated to adjust to electrification, even just from the transformer level. And so this is focused on the transformers, but you mentioned in your opening monologue also the poles, the wires, all of the switches and breakers and fuses and all of the rest of the infrastructure, which is, you know, a lot of us, we, we replace this, to your point, uh, on failure, right? We replace this when it breaks. Um, that's been our normal routine. Any, any research being done or any thoughts you have about a different planning paradigm that we need to start implementing um, on the distribution network? Yeah, the only thing I can really think of is maybe, you know, like I mentioned, other countries use meshed trans uh, distribution grids. So if a component fails, you can still have power rerouted to where it needs to go. Now, obviously there's cost, you know, the reason we don't do it is it's more costly and it's uh, more complicated to have that mesh. You just need more equipment. You need ways of disconnecting parts of the grid. Um, but creating redundancy is going to be really important when we think about planning. Um, it's not always going to be the cheapest cost solution. Sometimes we need to price things like outages in order to see the benefit of um, this redundancy. And redundancy in terms of, you know, incentivizes incentivizing local DERs, like rooftop solar, bi-directional electric vehicles, et cetera, but also in, uh, redundancy in the sense of the infrastructure itself. Um, and teams to repair the infrastructure after a disaster, honestly. Yeah, it takes teams. It takes a lot of people yes. to go out and get that stuff back up, as we just recently saw in the winter storm events, right? We had to get deploy resources in, a, in the storm to get people back up and running. So mm -hmm. I, ahead, I, I've got a, a bit of a comparison because we, we talked about two big issues today. Um, which one scares you most, the, the supply chain issues with our our transformers and other grid infrastructure or the 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 lack of the workforce needed to install all of the the electrification and and other yeah is it workforce or supply chain that worries <laughs> uh probably supply chain if i had to pick one because the thing with the workforce development is as it becomes you know more beneficial to society to have people uh, to have more contractors that can install heat pumps, to have more linemen, to have more electricians. I think, you know, to some degree, hopefully the salaries reflect that. More people will go into those areas a bit more rapidly. But with supply chain, it's like geopolitics and materials mining and like human humanitarian issues. So it's not as straightforward. So that one does scare me quite a bit. All right. Yeah, enough there. to keep us up at night. <laughs> Not one, it's the other. They are connected, though. I mean, the, the, a lot of these mm -hmm. issues are interconnected around, um, you know, the supply chain issues are also workforce issues. Um, a lot of the disruptions are with shipping and, and that kind of thing, not necessarily with the mining. 
uh, true, of the materials, very true. especially right now. Um, but we could, we will have more of it in, in different types of bottlenecks in the future. Um, but man, workforce, workforce, getting the workforce to be working on these issues, to train them, to be able to electrify is big. One. That's a big one. It's a fun one. I agree. And I don't want to be too negative either. You know, I'm scared of a lot of things in general. So <laughs> I'm also excited. I'm excited that we're moving towards this. You know, my uncle Bill and my aunt Ira uh, are my, you know, heroes. And I'm very, very happy that they're making these, making these moves. How do you feel about um, some advice? Um, I'm I'm curious. This is I, I like to ask at least one unfair question. So edit okay. this one out if it's too unfair. Um, I have this sense that we we have the best of intentions in this clean energy transformation but something is missing. There's something we're not thinking about that's going to come back and bite us. Um, just because we're human and we don't know everything. Um, have you thought at all about um, what's the, th what's the thing we're, we're, we're not thinking about enough and, and is at risk of being overlooked um, as through this transition? Well, the first, I mean, I'm, I think there's multiple things. The first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question is sort of the sociological aspect. Um, we're assuming that humans are all perfectly, you know, or to some degree economically driven and logical and, oh yeah, it makes financial sense to do that. So I'm going to do that. Um, energy's becoming super politicized and the sort of, you know, politicization of simple things like electric vehicles, you know, that that scares me a bit because it's going to be a roadblock that we can't necessarily change. We can put as many incentives there as we want, um, but it might be about psychology or people's what tribe they identify with or what you know movements they associate with those tribes. Um, that's something I don't know as much about, and I think probably why it's something that I don't know how to address is you know the human element of all of this. Wise words, wise words. That's a good answer. <laughs> what yeah. do we as humans are we not looking at ourselves? Humans, yeah, <laughs> ourselves, <laughs> other humans. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's it. Let's hit the typewriter and move on. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to close out the episode with a quick rundown of news stories we didn't get to in our TLDR segment. Uh, we're calling short to ground, but right now we're going to go a promo. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. This is Short to Ground, a segment where we blow a fuse covering the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Kyrie Baker. And we're, we're shorting to, to ground. ground. So over 14,000 people in Pierce County, Washington, celebrated Christmas in the dark due to vandalism at four different substations. KIRO 7 Local News has more on the story. This follows on the heels of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission ordering the North American Electric Reliability Corporation on December 15th to reevaluate federal physical security standards related to transmission facilities following earlier attacks and reports of vandalism against substations in the Northwest and other parts of the country. For more on the FERC order to NERC, check out Greg Mason's coverage in Clearing Up. Researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder co-authored a 2022 article considering spatial arbitrage through bidirectional electric vehicle charging. In the paper, the authors Constance Crozier 
Ashling Piggott and Kyrie Baker develop a deterministic and single-stage stochastic optimization framework, which maximizes revenue by optimizing the charging, discharging, and travel of an electric vehicle under spatial and temporal price uncertainty. For more, find a link to the article in the show notes. The Strategic EV Management Act, meant to expand the reuse and recycling of -of end-of-life electric vehicle batteries and federal fleet vehicles, passed the U.S. Senate Wednesday, December 14th as part of the annual defense budget. Provisions from the act are intended to enhance recycling for end-of-life batteries used in federal fleet vehicles. You can learn more from Megan Quinn's coverage in Utility Dive. The future of Alcoa's idled Intalco aluminum smelter in Ferndale, Washington, is in doubt after a potential buyer pulled out of negotiations with Bonneville Power Administration for a power supply contract in mid-December. The investor, Blue Wolf Capital, has said it needs to secure below market rates to make reopening the smelter financially viable. However, BPA spokesman Doug Johnson told Clearing Up the agency is prohibited from offering below market rates to non-preference customers. And while parties continued quote, talking about finding that sweet spot of term and price that would allow them to operate, we just couldn't get there, unquote. For more, including additional context of the history of the Intalco aluminum smelter, read Dan Catchpole's coverage in Clearing Up. There are increasing opportunities for Native American tribes to partner with private companies to build solar, wind, and other renewable energy projects as the U.S. pivots to cleaner energy resources. However, obstacles regarding legal structuring, taxing and permitting, and sovereignty make these projects particularly difficult to execute. For coverage of two online webinars held to help tribes navigate the clean energy transition, check out Yolanda Bloxham's coverage in California Energy Markets. 19 utilities and other energy entities have formally committed to joining the binding phase of the Western Power Pool's Western Resource Adequacy Program, which will facilitate capacity sharing among its members. The power pool had hoped to begin the program's next implementation phase on January 1st, but is still waiting for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to approve the tariff it filed in September. For more, including a list of the 19 utilities, you can find coverage by Dan Catchpole and clearing up. Two proposals to create renewable hydrogen hubs in the Northwest got a thumbs up from the U.S. Department of Energy in their efforts to get a slice of $7 billion of federal funding. The proposals were among the 33 from the original pool of 79 that DOE encouraged on December 27th to enter a full application by the deadline in April, the department said in an online update. Dan Catchpole covered the news for clearing up. Since the start of the water year, October 1st through January 4th, Central California has had precipitation that is more than 150% of normal. Despite this favorable start to the wet season across California, a number of major water supply reservoirs remain below 60% of their historic average. For more on drought conditions in California, as well as a discussion of the first manual California Water Department of Resources, California Department of Water Resources snow survey of 2023, you can find coverage by Linda Daly Paulson in California Energy Markets. Portland-based New Scale Power submitted a standard design approval application with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on January 1st for its Voyager 6 small modular reactor design. New Scale Small Modular Reactor, or SMR, could be among the first operational SMRs in the U.S. as part of the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems proposed 462-megawatt carbon-free power project. For more on the submission and project, find coverage in the Clearing Up by Steve Ernst. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today, January 9th, is at $157 per megawatt hour with Northwest gas at $16.07 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $44.80 and a heat rate of 9800 Spot power in the Southwest is at $88.75. Southern California is $166.67 and Northern California at $164.56. February gas at Henry Hub is trading at $3.71 per MMBTU. Natural gas spot prices in the Western United States nearly reached or exceeded $50 per MMBTU in December. The settled price of $50 per million British thermal units on December 21st, 2022, was the highest level of any other market and an average of $48.12 per MMBTU above Henry Hub, the national benchmark natural gas price. Several events occurring simultaneously at this point in the season contributed to prices rising to these levels, including one, widespread below normal temperatures, two, 
high natural gas consumption. Three, reduced natural gas flows. Four, pipeline constraints, including maintenance in West Texas. And five, low natural gas storage levels in the Pacific region. Wow. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the six to, day, six to 10 day outlook has above normal temperatures and above normal precipitation for the majority of the West, with the exception being Southern California with below normal temperatures. The 90 day seasonal outlooks issued December 15th have below normal temperatures and above normal precipitation for the Northern latitudes and above normal temperatures and below normal precipitation for the Southern portion of the West. Lastly, checking Northwest water supply forecasts, October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 2023 are currently forecasted to be 81% of normal, and April to September is at 83%. Day ending elevation at the Grand Coulee for January 8th was 1283 feet. Don't forget to check out Newsdata's annual edition of energy-themed carols in their December 23rd edition of California Energy Markets and Clearing Up. This year's carols include, quote, RA plan is coming to town to the tune of Santa Claus is coming to town. It's beginning to look a lot like EVs to the tune of it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I probably didn't need to uh, say what it was to the tune of. And uh, rewritten Let It Snow. All I want for Christmas is transmission and more. That's it for our TLDR segment. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. If you want to know more, you can find complete stories in California energy markets and clearing up. Let's close it out. Ready, Kyrie? Yeah, I'm ready. That's short, short to ground. Short to ground. Yes, you guys did it. You did a great job. <laughs> okay, any stories in there that you guys want to dig into? I know Paul's going to want to talk about gas prices. So. $50 per MBTU. That's, yeah, I know. That's high. That's really that's high. Lot. Yep. Did you have anything, Karen? Any stories in there that really stood out? <laughs> um, I uh, Interesting to see the end, almost end of the Intalco plant or the plan to restart the Intalco plant. Um, it's been something that uh, we at PPC have been keeping an eye on because we protect preference rights and we don't like it when other people try to take preference rights. So interesting to see a... a probable possible like final resolution to that as long as something else doesn't come up so and final resolution to them trying to get below market rates from bonneville there's still plenty of other power supply options available oh yeah you just can't have the, industrial... you just can't have the best prices you're not a preference yeah. customer yep period it's rice in the power act that's right <laughs> so um do y'all remember futurama the the cartoon everybody yeah. watched it okay so i the, when i first read your study about bi-directional charging and like location-based charging for electric vehicles mm-hmm. all i had in my head was it being like a bit in futurama where they would have these like cars going to different places and then shuttling back and forth at different times of day uh would love to hear more about what you studied and the actual outcomes of your analysis <laughs> there was other than my mental model of future yeah that's basically it no it's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of other pieces it, it's sort of like looking at you know the traditional energy arbitrage uh concept of you know done in time you buy when it's cheap and you sell when it's high and looking at a, a spatial aspect. So what if you could actually physically move energy from one place to another, not constrained by a transmission line? Um, so we looked at how much money could you make in this hypothetical study if you had a possibly autonomous electric vehicle or like fleet of electric vehicles or a semi-truck full of batteries that drives from one point in the transmission grid to another point, sell, buying at the cheap location and selling at the expensive location. So we sort of looked at a suburb of Austin. Somebody has a car there. They charge it cheap prices. They drive to work in Austin. They discharge it at the expensive prices and they sell some of the energy back. Um, you know, and they make maybe 20 bucks a day or something like that from doing this because now, you know, we can have DERs as small as a single EV participating in wholesale energy markets. So the next step of the study is looking at, you know, at a fleet scale, um, could this do things like help alleviate grid congestion, moving energy around, again, not constrained by transmission lines. So a little bit of a futuristic idea, but I think it's good to come up with other perspectives just in case there's some benefit there with this mobile energy storage concept. It's an interesting concept. Did you find anything in that paper, like an interesting uh, location there where you could do this economically? Like in, in Austin, could you do it? Well, the thing is when you 
if you're on the load side, you have to participate in the load zones, which are a lot more averaged out than like the total prices. So when you have averaged out prices, you can't really capitalize on price spikes as much as you can if you're more subject to the variability of the nodal prices. So I think to make this feasible, you either have to have a ton of battery capacity moving back and forth or be in a market where your price is changing more dramatically because it wasn't a big benefit. It was something like in the best case we looked at, the single Tesla Model S gets like $250 a month doing this, you know, every day. And there might be some cost to degrading the battery if you're doing this that regularly. So unclear if it it's a wash or not. Yeah, interesting. I oh. tossed a. Oh, go ahead, Amaz. I know I was going to say that I, I, the visual that I got was my sister. She still drives a gas car, but she'll she will go two to five miles out of her way because she knows there's a gas station that has gas that's ten cents cheaper. And I'm like, you know, if you get ten gallons, that's like a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> um. So like I I can see EVs doing something similar if you've got the same kind of driver behind the wheel. And we do yeah. have this behavior currently. Like this is yeah. the behavior of people now is yeah. figuring out where exactly they should be charging. The new thing though is you're then going to go sell your gas at this other place, right? That's what the bidirectional electric vehicle does. You can then go sell it at this other place. Yeah, it would be equivalent to like siphoning out the gas, yeah. selling it to somebody. <laughs> And then possibly making a small profit from that. Yep. Um, minus the sketchiness of selling your gas. Yeah, minus the sketchiness of <laughs> the funnel in the middle of the parking yeah. lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool, I promise. <laughs> I tossed in this story about the drought conditions in California. I, I believe, uh, Professor Baker, you, you think a little bit about the water energy nexus. It's yeah. a big topic in the Colorado River and also in the desert southwest, the kind of impending crisis of reservoirs going going dry and not being able to produce power. Any thoughts there on the the near term? We're, we're getting a lot of rain in California now. Yes. Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't realize how much water thermoelectric plants need to operate to cool, but also to turn into the steam that then generates, you know, that turns the steam turbine. So if you take a look at the map of the U.S. with power plants, you know, a lot of nuclear and coal um, that have been had to reduce their output or shut down due to water supply issues, it's actually pretty significant. So, um, you know, we're taking a look at how can we change the way that electricity markets work to perhaps not only incentivize low cost generation and low carbon generation, but maybe also low water uh, consuming generation. Because we're talking, you know, millions of gallons of water a day that goes into these plants. Um, now, not all of it is consumed in the sense that it returns back to the water supply, but it returns back often at much higher temperatures, which does things like, you know, hurts wildlife. Um, it possibly has some chemicals in the in the water discharge. So the water issues with drought um, and just in general, the length of the droughts is going to impact generation and, and it already has. So this is research you're doing now? Is there pending? Yes. Uh, should I be on the lookout for some stories or articles? Or Yes, I have some research articles with my student, Jacob Kravitz, um, and my colleague, Joe Kasprizek, that's looking at this water energy nexus. And, you know, we talk about things like carbon taxes, but maybe there should also be a water tax to help, you know, address the water energy gap and see how we can hedge against some of these water supply issues that might crop up in the future. Okay. I'll be on the lookout. It's very exciting stuff. And also, you know, with our theme of fear today, a little bit scary (laughs) to think about (laughs) how drought may impact the power sector, but it is a little scary. Yeah. Okay. Is that it? That's it. That's all we're covering this week. Wonderful job by our celebrity guest star. Thank you very much, Professor Baker, for being willing to join us. I hope you feel valued and appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much for like, you know, inviting me, preparing everything and doing the research on my research. I appreciate that. Absolutely. We're here for it. I hope this was a fun experience that you can tell people that this isn't that bad when I go reach out on energy Twitter. It's not that bad, right? <laughs> no, it's not. It was a little scary though, especially when I saw, you know, the script. I'm like, I'm gonna mess up some words, but 
But I yeah. think Paul took that away first, so you didn't have to worry about it after. Yeah, I was like, oh, he, yeah. He yeah, I, I scribbled a bunch. Uh, Karen, you provide a pursuit. Thank you for being the host today, Karen. Oh, thank thank you for having me as the host. And yes, I do feel valued and appreciated. Thank you, Paul. Good, Amaz. Thank you again Always. for being a co-host here. Thank you very much. Always. Good. Yeah. Well, great meeting both of you too, and thank you, Paul, again for the invite. Yes, thank you very much. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. You can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to ways to, with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Thanks to the Public Power Council and our PPC podcast ambassador, Karen Heim. PPC represents the Pacific Northwest consumer-owned utilities on important issues in the region and in Washington, D.C. for the purpose of preserving and enhancing the benefits of the federal Columbia River power system for consumer-owned utilities. You can find Karen everywhere you find PPC. Also, thanks to our production partners at NewsData. You don't have to be subscribed to NewsData's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed your own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, PPC News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written by Paul Dockery and Almaz Nagesh, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden, with sound mixing by Lucas Smith, and video editing by Brendan Delzer. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in.